Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of Deep Diving, a brand new podcast. My name is Owen. Thank you for joining us. Today's podcast is slightly different from the ones that have come before in that it focuses on a singular historical event, namely Pride. Now, the Pride celebrations and parades and marches all around the world are exactly that. They are a celebration of the LGBTQ communities, um, but they're also a commemoration of a singular event that was the genesis of Pride, namely the Stonewall Riots. Now, Stonewall was quite a famous pub, night venue, late bar in New York. And in the 1960s, late 1960s, it was raided by the police, which was custom at the time. It had uh, illegal liquor licenses, was run by the mafia, and so was subject to raids, as many other bars were. However, the gay community, widely persecuted at the time, decided enough was enough, and they fought back on that one particular evening. And that fight kick-started what are known as the Stonewall Riots, which paved the way for massive advances in gay rights, progressive strides in the gay community, the forming of organisations, the printing of magazines, and ultimately, like I said, the genesis of the Pride celebrations that are uh, known and increasingly loved around the world, although that's not to say it's a stroll in the park to be gay in many parts of the world. My guest today to talk us through the history of Pride and also the commercialization of Pride in the last few years by loads of companies around the world and to pick apart whether or not that's a welcome addition that companies are embracing so openly this vibrant visual celebration of LGBTQ life or if it's a cynical uh, self-serving exercise. The man who's going to do that is Mark Joseph Stern. He is a proud gay man and journalist for Slate magazine in Washington, D.C. He is a beacon of knowledge on all things Americana, pop culture, politics and gay life and he's going to walk us through the history of Stonewall and also, like I say, the commercialization of Pride. And also whilst he's here, he's going to touch on one of the hot topics Topics of the news the last while, which has been these detention centres along the uh, America-Mexico border where children have been separated from their families. Without further ado, this is Deep Diving, the Pride Special. Mark Joseph Stern, live from Washington, D.C. How are you? I am so good. Thank you for having me back on. Happy Pride to one and all. Happy Pride indeed. You've done your thesis on this bad boy, so you're well-versed. <laughs> yes, I am deeply acquainted with the history of Pride and LGBTQ rights in the United States because I am a gay nerd, and that is how gay nerds process their sexuality, is by writing 100-page theses about it. <laughs> okay, give us the lay men and women who are listening, the layman's history of Stonewall the riots and how pride came from there. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing history, I think, because we have a motto here in the States that the first pride parade was a riot. Uh, and that's absolutely true. So Stonewall is this seedy gay bar in, uh, in New York City. Uh, and in the 60s, it was the spot to go to if you were gay and you wanted to be around, you know, other gay people, other LGBTQ people. There were trans people. Uh, bisexual people, queer people, gender nonconforming. It was like a wonderland for sexual minorities. Uh, the problem was it wasn't exactly a safe place to be. So it was run by the mafia, uh, which was very common for gay bars in the 1960s in the United States because nobody else would finance them. Nobody else would even be associated with them. 
there was actually a, a pretty sympathetic relationship between the gay proprietors uh, and the mafia in running these bars. Uh, however, the mafia did occasionally blackmail individuals who showed up at Stonewall. That's one of the seedier moments in this history. Uh, and, you know, police happened to raid oh, sorry. the bar. Sorry, Mark, just to clarify, blackmail in the sense that, hey, if you don't pay us money, we're going to out you. Yeah, that's what happened. I know. It's not the happiest history here at the beginning. Um, I mean, look, it was really bad to be gay in the United States in the 1960s. You were banned from government jobs. Uh, you could be thrown out of your house. You could be fired. Uh, you could be lose custody of your children. I mean, we had tons of laws criminalizing homosexuality in this country up until quite recently. And so what some, what some mafia proprietors would do... Uh, is basically figure out who the rich people attending Stonewall were, uh, figure out where they worked, and send them blackmail messages saying, if you don't pay us a certain amount of money, we are going to out you to the entire world. Okay, right. So, so Stonewall is this hot-to-trot gay bar. Everybody's there. Um, and then on one night in 1969, who's Marsha P. Johnson? Yeah, so Marsha P. Johnson is an amazing figure in our history. She is a transgender woman uh, who is living her truth, living out loud. She was, by all accounts, a totally charismatic, really brilliant. Um, and she was at Stonewall. A bunch of other uh, LGBTQ people were, uh, you know, hanging out at Stonewall. It was a fun night. And the police started raiding it. Now, back up a second. The police raided Stonewall all the time. They raided all kinds of gay bars all the time. And that wasn't actually because of the mafia connection. I know this is surprising, but it was considered illegal to serve alcohol to openly gay people in the 1960s. It was literally considered disorderly conduct to serve booze to gays. And so the police would just periodically go into Stonewall, seize all the liquor, arrest Arrest a bunch of people, rough them up sometimes. I mean, it was definitely a human rights violation. Uh, and, you know, send some people to jail for a few days. And then eventually everything would go back to normal. Everyone would have fun for another few weeks or months. And then the whole process would start over again. There'd be another raid. Everyone would be degraded and arrested. Uh, this was what life was like for gay and trans New Yorkers in 1969. Uh, okay, so they raid, as happens occasionally, on this one particular night and what's different about this night what's different is that people like marsha p johnson fight back and I, I mean this is an incredible story to me because we respect our police a great deal in this country uh you know we we say blue lives matter all that kind of stuff the president's constantly talking about it it's a bipartisan issue we respect law enforcement but on this night all of the customers of stonewall and then some fought back against the police violently uh i mean marsha p johnson may have thrown a brick other people's 
threw bricks at the cops. They tried to destroy their cars. Uh, they outnumbered them. They burned things. They actually rioted. This was like a good old-fashioned riot. And uh, I mean, it lasted for more than that night. It was kind of like on and off for a few days uh, because everyone was saying, we've had enough. We are rising up against this nonsense, the police brutality, the homophobia, and we are going out in public and saying we demand the right to be openly gay, to be openly trans, and to live our lives. And this had just never happened before, not in the entire history of the United States. There had been little rebellions here or there, but nothing on the scale of Stonewall. And the reason why is pretty simple, because most people who were going to this bar, they were hiding their identities in, in, in the majority of their lives. They were not out in any way, and they didn't want to be public about even going to Stonewall, let alone being gay or transgender or bisexual or queer. And so this was the first moment that they got together and they said, screw that. We're not hiding anymore. We're not going to be shamefully taken to the police station and thrown in a cell. We're not going to pretend none of this ever happened. We are rising up to hell with the consequences and we are fighting back against the cops. Okay, so there's there's the riot on night one, then there's riots a few nights later and people around Stonewall and um, is it Tribeca East Village? Yes, the village in New York. It's actually where Slate's old office was, RIP. I used to go to Stonewall after work sometimes. <laughs> so people start mobilizing and it becomes this this movement. And what's the reaction to it? Like after the initial mayhem and the bricks and the burning of cars, if after that's died down, do do the police force and the authorities try to stamp it out? Or is it kind of this awakening moment where the gay community and the LGBT community are allowed space to... To visibly protest as long as they're not burning things. What's the immediate yeah. aftermath? Yeah, so what's what's crazy is that the police did kind of give up, which you would not expect, and it wouldn't happen today. I mean, this was a different era of policing, right? They did not have assault weapons uh, and, you know, tanks in the streets with which to subdue these people. And by the time hundreds of people started pouring out into the streets, um, you know, really the entire community wound up showing up at Stonewall, even if they weren't there that night. Uh, the police realized they were out numbered, they could not shoot their way out of it. They didn't have very big guns. They couldn't arrest their way out of it. They didn't have the capacity. And so they basically gave up. And that, again, never would happen today. But it shows just how powerful this movement had become. And if you look at the press releases and the write-ups in the newspaper around this time, you can see there's almost a little bit of begrudging respect, even in really homophobic write-ups. So there's this notorious article that came out the next day uh, that the, the, the nest of Stonewall was raided and the queen bees are stinging mad, which is like kind of homophobic, right? Uh, but the article itself actually gives some credit to the patrons 
Americans for fighting back and standing up for what they believe in. And that was absolutely the takeaway uh, in the community and even outside of the community uh, because this riot was successful, because they won. These individuals had been hiding for so long, had been so scared of the police, and all it took was everybody getting together and fighting back, and they won this victory. And that was the start of it all. And when we talk about Stonewall, I think it's important to remember it had a very contested history for a long time, but in Barack Obama's second inaugural address, he talked about Stonewall as one of the great moments in American civil rights history. And that was revolutionary, and it really cemented this moment in the popular consciousness, I think, uh, as something that we should celebrate as a moment of, you know, individual liberties uh, sort of conquering over the forces of fear and bigotry. So I'm looking, I'm looking at a little bit of history here. Um, after six months after the Stonewall riots, or within six months, um, there's this newspaper, citywide newspaper called Gay, um, yes. and that replaced or was kind of competition to this very liberal paper uh, called the Village Voice, but it refused to print the word Gay. Um, there are these gay awareness groups happening. It all seems very progressive, and yet. Is it still quite a homophobic city? Like, like the riots happen, there's some activism, there's newspapers, there's a community formed, there's solidarity, but it's still a shit place and time to be gay. It depends on your perspective, because I think in that community, within a few blocks of New York City, in a few bars and a few brownstones, it was a beautiful time, because for the first time, people felt free. They felt like they were finally refusing to cower in fear, refusing to be ashamed. And this was the time that this community actually formed. There was no gay or LGBTQ community to speak of before Stonewall. Scattered places here or there, some some bars, you know, some stretches of, of, of land in New York and San Francisco, but there wasn't a movement in a community. So this was the birth of all of that. And yes, the rest of the country was still really homophobic. There's no question that the United States was hella homophobic in 1969. Uh, and even New York City, which is today very progressive, absolutely was mostly homophobic and transphobic. It's not like these people could march down Fifth Avenue in drag and not expect some scowls or maybe even some violence. Um, But there was this sense that that was starting to change. It was beginning to change because people were uh, gaining some respect and some knowledge of this community. They weren't seeing them as sort of pathetic people who hid in the shadows. Uh, They weren't seeing them as pure victims. Uh, the, The the rest of the country was beginning to wake up to the fact that this was a movement demanding their rights and really taking a page out of the black civil rights movement that had been so successful in the 1960s and the 1950s. So there was a sense starting around this period that if you hated LGBTQ people, you may wind up on the wrong side of history and no American wants to be on the wrong side of history. So so June 28th, 1970, that's the first anniversary of the Stonewall riots. A couple of months previous, um, again, I'm now reading this, but maybe this is quite a famous story in in the Pride history. So there's this inspector, Seymour Pine. 
He raids this bar called the Snake Pit. He raids it on the grounds that it doesn't have a liquor license again. It's serving when it shouldn't be, but it is a gay bar. And there's a guy in there, an Argentinian guy called Diego Vanales. And he's so frightened that he might be deported as a homosexual. He tried to escape the police precinct by jumping out of a two-story window, impaling himself on this 14-inch spike fence. And then the New York Daily News prints a photo of this man's impalement on the front page and there's more riots and there's more protests. Yes, and more galvanization, right? Because this was further evidence um, that, you know, LGBTQ people were being targeted. Look, there were plenty of bars in New York that were selling alcohol without a liquor license. Uh, The reason that gay bars didn't have a liquor license is because the city refused to give it to them. Again, it was considered illegal to sell alcohol to gay people. There is this famous picture of openly gay people at a bar called Julius, which is still around, and they say, we're gay and we want to drink, and the bartender refuses to serve them because it would be illegal. So this is another example, a kind of Stonewall-like example of a bar being targeted because of its gay nature, uh, and a horrible, horrible outcome, right? This guy impaled a visceral picture, uh, and it further galvanized the community, and like I was saying, it started to clue more New Yorkers into the fact that something was going on here. This wasn't just a one-off thing. This wasn't just one or two or three nights of riots and then no more speaking of it. This was the start of a movement and, you know, people were angry, people were upset, and they were realizing just how terrible an effect anti-LGBTQ laws have on the lives and health and safety of, of LGBTQ people. So that is another important moment, and it shows how these events just keep snowballing to the point that you get June, the entire month of June, as a, a month of pride, not just in New York City, but in other cities across the nation that cite Stonewall as their impetus and then take it further and say, this is our city, these are our rights, and we're going to march in the streets to celebrate ourselves and to demand our civil liberties. So pride all around the world, in essence, is a commemoration of riots in one bar in New York on one night. Absolutely. That is absolutely right. And if you look, I wish there were a map uh, that showed over the years the spread of pride. Because, again, it began in New York on the first anniversary of Stonewall. There was a relatively small but still noticeable uh, march in the streets that was both celebratory uh, and angry, right? There were people saying, remember Stonewall. It's been one year. Don't let this movement die. Then it starts to spread. It starts to spread to San Francisco, to Los Angeles, to Miami, to Atlanta, places even in the Deep South. Other cities are waking up to this. They have their own injustices, too. You know, this is not only about Stonewall, but they are using the Stonewall example to inspire people to say, this is what happens when we fight back. And that is why pride should not ever be seen as just a celebration. I mean, it is fun and it is happy. 
everybody, and everybody loves going to pride parades unless they are, you know, unforgivable bigots. Uh, but the truth is that there has always been some anger, some frustration, uh, some demands in these parades, in these marches, um, because they are meant to remind everybody that we still don't have equal rights, that we still don't have true equality, um, and that our history is a tragic one in some ways, that we are still fighting to overcome our traumatic history uh, and to give ourselves full and equal citizenship. Let's jump then to present day. Because when I mentioned to you I'd like to talk a little bit about Pride and the history of, you said, oh, we should also talk about the commercialization of. Because I feel yeah. like um, uh, certainly in many countries all across Europe, in some states in the United States, most hopefully, it's uh, it's safe and even fashionable to be gay Um and brands know this now, and a lot of brands, only very recently, but, ha- you know, certainly a lot of them have jumped on Pride and are, you know, it's all very token gesturism, but, you know, they're doing their logo in the Pride colours and they have snazzy hashtags and they'll do special Pride offers in restaurants or clothing, whatever it may be. Is this grotesque or just capitalism, but capitalism for the better? somewhere in between. I will confess to having really mixed feelings. Um, But I will tell you that, you know, when I first came out, um, and this was uh, long ago in 2010, a totally different era, uh, I remember going to the Pride Parade here in Washington, D.C., and seeing all of these companies marching in the parade, all of their LGBTQ members, their employees, uh, were marching on these floats, having a great time, and that meant a lot to me. You know, to see all of these companies, not just famously liberal ones, but giant corporations like Walmart, like Delta, right? Like everything you hear of as a giant American corporation, they are all present at pride parades and they encourage their LGBTQ members to march. They will even give, like airlines will rearrange their gay flight attendant schedules so they can make the pride parade that they want to go to. Um, And that is a beautiful thing because it shows that uh, acceptance and embrace of LGBTQ rights is not a political thing. It's not partisan. It shouldn't be controversial. It shouldn't even be a big deal. It helps to normalize LGBTQ acceptance. And again, I think that's beautiful. And I want employees of these companies to be able to march and be proud and celebrate their identities and celebrate the fact that their companies embrace them. So that's the good side. But let's talk about the bad side. First of all, remember, the first Pride Parade was a riot, right? So you are now having corporations marching in the streets, throwing out necklaces and little candies and goodies, uh, commemorating what was a violent riot against police. They are whitewashing the history. There's no question there. They are probably not even familiar with it. Now, is that fair given given that Pride itself has turned into a celebration? I mean, is there, is there any onus on the companies? Because even gay people themselves who were affected by the real world implications of being gay, they themselves have turned it into a celebration, even if they acknowledge the history. 
Okay, okay, fine. Fair enough. That is a true point. Um, there is some contention about that within the community. Um, I have a friend who believes that uh, no corporation should celebrate because every parade should be a commemoration of Stonewall. Uh, but you're right, that the meaning changes, and today it is more of a celebration. But let's talk about who is celebrating. So companies like Walmart are marching in these parades, right? But they are also donating a ton of money on the side to anti anti-gay politicians, to anti-gay campaigns. And the reason why is because the cost of doing business in America uh, for a lot of big corporations is giving money to Republicans. That's just how it works. So you have these companies marching, having their employees march, celebrating LGBTQ rights, and then turning around the very next day and writing a big fat check to a senator who is going to vote against LGBTQ rights, to a senator who doesn't believe in marriage equality, who doesn't believe in trans equality. And so there is a kind of two-faced side to these companies uh, that I, I think we haven't really engaged with as a community. We accept them when they're marching in the parades throwing beads, and then we turn a blind eye to the fact that they are hindering our fight for equality on the other 364 days of the year. Uh, how do you feel about, have you seen the new Taylor Swift video, You Need to Calm Down? Y- yes, I have. <laughs> Shane, never made anybody less gay. Now, I saw a headline on The Onion that I can't find it now at the tip of my uh, fingers, but it basically said something akin to, it was a photo of Taylor Swift, and it was like, Taylor Swift gives master pl- uh, master class in how to make the biggest gay event in the world all about her, a white straight woman. Um, <laughs> now, I thought that was grossly unfair, but would that be a common sentiment echoed? It is a generational thing. Let me tell you, my mom, big ally, you know, goes to the Tallahassee, Florida Pride Parade every year. She loves this song because for her, it still is, I think, a little bit scary to have a gay son who, you know, didn't have full rights under this country's laws until very recently. And every sign of uh, mainstream acceptance and equality, she still adores. And I think that's fine. I think that's fair. Younger people, people my age, my generation, they have grown up in a country that has swiftly embraced LGBTQ rights, right? A supermajority of Americans support marriage equality now. It's not even an issue in most campaigns. They see Taylor Swift as uh, making a kind of cynical ploy uh, to get a bunch of money during Pride Month, to cash in on her acceptance of LGBTQ people, uh, to sort of exploit her gay fan base uh, without really giving anything in return, without making any sacrifices. So there is very mixed feelings about this video and this song. I, as a, a fairly young person, I tend to think it is a little bit cynical, but frankly, I like the song and I love the video because the video includes some of my favorite LGBTQ people, not just, you know, white, cis, uh, gay boys, but trans women, gender fluid people, non-binary people. I think Taylor Swift has the right idea, but as usual with Taylor Swift, even when she's doing the right thing, she manages to get a lot of money out of it anyway, and that's what rankles some people about this whole thing. 
Uh, I saw I saw there's quite a prolific tweeter over here, um, Declan Cashin, who's worked for Buzzfeed, Buzzfeed in the UK and Twitter and stuff, an Irish guy, and he tweeted an apology, a retraction, if you like. He would say, "Look, I threw shade at Taylor Swift like a few people did when she brought out this video," uh, and then then this gay guy wrote to me, and he was going, "We moan about visibility being such a such an issue and such a hot potato." Um, and then Taylor Swift comes along and basically gives the biggest platform she has, her music video, to all these LGBT icons. as the Queer Eye cast in there and RuPaul's Drag Race gang in there and Ellen DeGeneres and uh, other people who I probably don't even know. And people slap her for it. Yeah, uh, and that's an absolutely great point. And imagine, too, that you are a 15-year-old gay boy living in Alabama or whatever Alabama's equivalent is in Ireland, right? Uh, Your school doesn't like you. Your parents may reject you. Your community is anti-gay. But you open your cell phone and watch this video, and your favorite pop star just wrote an entire song that's basically a tribute to you and your identity and how beautiful it is. And I, I think that's wonderful. You can't deny that that means a lot. I mean, if I had seen a song and a video like this when I was 12 or 13, it would have made a world of difference because when you're that age, you are craving signs of acceptance. You are craving anything that will show that you aren't a freak, that you aren't weird, that your identity is beautiful and that you should embrace it. So I give Taylor Swift credit. I really do. I'm not going to be a cynical naysayer about this. I will just note that I'm sure her business manager and her PR people were delighted that she decided to do all of this because it certainly doesn't hurt her brand uh, and it probably brought in a lot of cash. Okay, fair enough. Hey, I'll tell you what, um, let's move on to to Donald Trump and these detention centres. Okay. Um, Uh, Not so much fun, but important to talk about. Yeah, because... um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the darling of the Democratic Party. Well, semi-darling. I don't think they all love her. But she made the bold step, the brazen step, some would say, and the grossly offensive step, others would say, of comparing these detention camps down on the southern border with Mexico, um, where children have been separated from families, some kids have died, some adults have died. Uh, She compared them to concentration camps and the Holocaust. And some people have idolised her for it and some people have said you disrespectful disgusting ill-informed fool what the fuck are you talking about Um, (laughs) and as an informed Jewish liberal American I'd be very curious to get your take yeah so Look, I um, I have mixed feelings. You may not be surprised to learn. Um, I think that the Holocaust was, you know, this sort of uniquely evil event in history, and we should really hesitate before comparing anything to the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a genocide of Jews uh, and others, but primarily Jews. Um, What's going on at the southern border right now is atrocious. What's happening in these camps is appalling, but it is not a genocide. It is not the Holocaust. However, I do think that it is fair to call these camps concentration camps 
because that term did not originate with the Holocaust. It originated earlier than that. It was actually practiced by Americans. We put uh, our Native Americans, our Indians, in concentration camps here. Uh, Many colonizers did the same in Africa. Uh, The idea of concentration camps is not unique to the Holocaust. And frankly, I don't know if there is a better description of what these facilities are. These are prisons filled mostly with little children, even some infants, who are separated from their parents, who are denied soap, a place to sleep, denied toothpaste, denied any educational opportunities, punished for complaining, uh, stuck in overcrowded cells where they can't even lie down. This is a human rights atrocity. No, it is not the Holocaust. It is not like the Holocaust. But these camps can fairly be described as concentration camps. And look, even if AOC was doing a bit of an overstatement here, she is trying to make the country wake up to these appalling conditions. And even if she got a lot of blowback, she succeeded. So I think her statement was mostly fair. I would caution her to stay away from other Holocaust analogies. But in her effort to draw our attention to these facilities and the horrible conditions there, I think she did the right thing, and I give her some credit for that. Now, one thing I have seen leveled uh, at, you know, you know, these big arguments happening back and forth on Twitter, where else would it happen? Um, people who are are espousing the evil of these camps, I've seen it thrown around a lot. Actually, you know what? Obama started these camps. Obama was responsible for for the the current setup that exists, and it's only because so many people hate Trump with such ferocity that they're now shining a magnifying glass on it. Is that or is that not true? There is some truth to that, I will admit. And you know I, I was a fan of President Obama, but he was often called the deporter-in-chief by immigrants' rights activists. And even though his immigration policies were far better than Trump's, they were still not great. And he did indeed put a, a fair number of children in these camps uh, and subjected them to conditions that we would describe as unsanitary and unsafe. Uh, there is no excusing that. I will not attempt to excuse it. What about um, the separating was, from the parents bit? There was not separation from parents, and that is a key distinction. Obama kept families together. He uh, implemented policies that allowed families to be released. If they had to be detained temporarily, they were all kept together in the same facility. So there was not child separation under Obama. And furthermore, I would note that when children were placed in these prisons under Obama, there was every effort to get them out as quickly as possible, to find sponsors for them or family members who would take them uh, and bring them somewhere safe and comfortable. And that has all changed under Trump. Trump has made it extremely difficult for these children ever to leave. And that is why the overcrowding problem has been so exacerbated. There are way more children, and it is so hard to get any of them out of there. Uh, And it seems that, and we only have anecdotal reports, but it seems that under Trump, the guards in these camps have run hog wild, tormenting these children, punishing them for doing nothing wrong, for little infractions, treating them like subhumans. That did not happen under Obama, or at least not 
not nearly as frequently. So there is a difference here, but the basic point is correct that some of this was happening under Obama, and it shows that the problems in our system go way deeper than Donald Trump. How do you think um, this week there was there was a really graphic and upsetting photo that people may or may not have seen online. If you are going to seek it out, uh, I would urge caution. But it's the bodies of this Salvadoran migrant, uh, Oscar Alberto Ramirez was his name, and his not even two year old daughter Valeria they're lying face down on the bank of a river the Rio Grande in uh, Mexico after they drowned trying to cross uh, the river into Texas Um, I believe he brought over his daughter he went back to get another family member the daughter followed him back into the water because she was a child and didn't know any better Um, she got into difficulty he went to save her and the two of them drowned and they wash up and she still got her arm around his neck. Uh, it's, it's, it's a harrowing photo. Um, do you think photos like these, I can't, like, like all the rape accusations against Trump, they're, they're kind of, not that they're that frequent, but people are so desensitised to frequent horrors now that sadly this won't make a difference or do you still think powerful iconic photos like these can make and will make a difference well i I think this was undoubtedly powerful and iconic and it reminds me of that horrible photo uh, of the little boy who washed up on the beach attempting to flee to europe you may remember he was i believe a syrian migrant um, and that really sort of uh, alerted the world to this crisis that it had largely been ignoring up till then. Uh, I think this photo is powerful, and I think it will wake a lot of people up to this crisis. I have mixed feelings about its use. Uh, a number of minority writers, whom I greatly respect, criticized the media for publishing it, for sort of using brown bodies, as they put it, uh, to make this point without any sensitivity to readers. Um, I, I, I do question if it were a white body, whether it would have been used that way. I think that people are a little more desensitized to images of violence against racial minorities. Um, And uh, so I think it's a tough call. I don't know what I would have done if I were the editor. Um, Regardless of whether it was the right thing to do, to publish this photo, to make it the main image on this story, it has caused a mini firestorm here in the United States. And it has absolutely contributed to this big dispute over these camps, over Trump's immigration policy policies, uh, over this crisis of of migrants dying en route to the United States. I don't know if it's going to change anything. It's so hard to know what will move the needle in this country now, but I do think it has forced the Democratic Party to make this a key priority. The first round of debates between the 2020 candidates happened last night. The second round happens tonight. Both nights they're going to be talking about this issue. They might even talk about this picture. It is now a priority in a way that it wasn't. So whether or not publishing that photo is the right call, people are talking about it in an important way. I don't know if it's going to move the needle, but I I, I desperately hope that it
it will because this should be the very last child, the very last person who dies fleeing violence, just trying to find safe haven in the United States. Hey, listen, it's it's great to have you on the podcast. And, and I know there was a lot of people when we did Radio Weekly were devastated when our show came to an end. But there are talks for myself and Mark to have our own little uh, weekly project. We'll say nothing. Um, so we'll update people as and when. In the meantime, if you want to catch Mark, he's on Twitter. It's at MJS, Mark Joseph Stern, at MJS underscore DC. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for the time. Happy Pride. And we'll talk to you very soon. Happy Pride. Talk to you soon.